Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young, trying to contain the ecological and political damage from the Gulf oil gusher. President Obama backs away from his proposed expansion of offshore drilling. Where I was wrong was in my belief that the oil companies had their act together when it came to worst-case scenarios. And the oystermen of Louisiana's Plaquemines Parish face their own worst-case scenario. The magnitude of that spill, ain't no way you're going to be able to stop all of it. And once again, the marsh, man, really, that's, that's being the laws of fight. And you take that away, well, you take away the seafood and you take away us and domino effect, you know. The loss of a livelihood and way of life on the bayou. Also, how the coming hurricane season could affect an oiled gulf. Those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. After more than a month, there is at last hope that the Gulf oil gusher will stop. As we record this program, officials are cautiously optimistic about the top-kill procedure to plug the leak. But the damage continues. Cleanup crews scramble to contain the oil, and the president tries political damage control. President Obama defended his handling of the crisis and put restrictions on offshore drilling. A six-month moratorium on deepwater permits, a suspension of Arctic oil exploration, and the cancellation of leases in Virginia's waters. It was a remarkable step back from the president's expansion of offshore drilling announced just eight weeks ago. The overall framework, which is to say domestic uh, oil production should be part of our overall energy mix, I think continues to be the right one. Where I was wrong was in my belief that the oil companies had their act together when it came to worst-case scenarios. Independent Commission will investigate lax government oversight of drilling, and the head of the Troubled Minerals Management Service resigned. And the president said the Gulf tragedy teaches a larger lesson. The country needs cleaner energy. He called on the Senate to pass the stalled energy and climate bill. If nothing else, this disaster should serve as a wake-up call that it's time to move forward on this legislation. It's time to accelerate the competition with countries like China who've already realized the future lies in renewable energy. And it's time to seize that future ourselves. We also now have the first official estimate of just how much oil has spewed into the Gulf. A team of scientists with the U.S. Geological Survey says it's somewhere between 12 and 25,000 barrels a day. That's two to five times more than BP first estimated, and makes this the largest oil spill in U.S. history. It's already been declared a fishery disaster in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. Tens of thousands of people in those states make their living from fish, shrimp, crabs, and oysters. They supply more than 40% of the nation's seafood and 70% of the country's oysters. Oysters are also vital for the ecological role they play, filtering water and forming reefs that shelter animals and the shore itself. We have two reports on the Gulf's oysters and the people who depend on them. We start with Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet on the Alabama coast. 
In a working yard on the shore of Mobile Bay, trucks loaded with neon yellow and orange boom roll in and out. This is now a spill response staging area. Nearby is one of the Gulf's famous seafood canneries, and in its backyard is what might be the world's largest ever pile of oyster shells. We have a mountain of oyster shells. It's huge. Maybe 30, 40, 50 feet high of oyster shells, a football field long. And those oyster shells need to get back in the water, don't they? Bill Finch is with the Alabama Nature Conservancy. The shells need to get back into the water, he says, so that baby oysters can attach to them. There's a lot of mud in places like Mobile Bay and sand, and oysters can't attach to mud and sand very well. They need something hard to attach to. Over tens of thousands of years, oysters sort of built their own architecture, (laughs) sort of built it from the base up. About half of that architecture, the Gulf Coast oyster reefs, is now gone, attacked by carnivorous snails and fished out. That's what led the Nature Conservancy and other groups across 17 Gulf and eastern states to experiment with building up new reefs. Come up with something good for them to attach to. And the very best thing that an oyster can attach to, we've decided, is another oyster. Surprise, surprise. So on the days before the Deepwater Horizon oil well blew out, workers in this yard spent their time packing discarded oyster shells into special mesh bags. Then they sunk the bags offshore, building a mile of new reef. The Conservancy's oyster restoration project manager, Jeff DiQuattro, says everyone should care about oysters. For one thing, the reefs they construct turn out to be a favorite place for fish to prowl. All the Gulf species of fish at some stage, come in contact with some form of oysters, whether it be an oyster bed or an oyster reef. Uh, they're synonymous to coral reef. DiQuattro and Marine Programs Director Judy Hayner say oysters are unappreciated filterers of water. Oysters filter several gallons of water a day. Some say 25 gallons, some say 50 gallons. It's a lot. They filter metals, they filter sediment, anything that of a a certain size that they can fit into their mouths. I would say a minor sheen they could probably handle and maybe even recover from, but something that is a big, gloppy, you know, something, they're filter feeders. So that's going to really kind of clog the innards, if you will, and that's going to be really tough for them to save themselves from. Like Bill Finch, Hayner and DeQuattro worry about the mile of new reef they've created. This could be a big setback. Oysters are at pretty shallow depths, normally near shoals or near shore. So they risk being coated with oil at every stage. If the young oysters adrift in the Gulf currents are carried into a cloud of petroleum, it will likely happen just as nature is calling them to sprout a foot, to touch a rough, hard surface where they can attach and grow. Ingrid Lobat reporting from Alabama's Mobile Bay. Just to the south, I got on a boat for a look at the marshes of Louisiana. Hold on. Plaquemines Parish, the oil is slowly coming ashore, despite miles of booms. Some fishing grounds and oyster beds have already been shut down. This patch of Breton Sound is still clean, but scientist John Lopez fears the oil could jeopardize his group's attempts to use oysters to protect the fragile coast. 
this is a location where we're trying to do our oyster reef project and you're on the edge of the marsh and essentially from here on out you've got open sound and gulf of mexico so this little island would be one of the first areas that would be impacted if, if the the oil did move in significant quantities into uh, breton sound lopez pulls his boat up to a small patch of land where terns are nesting he directs the coastal sustainability program for the lake pontchartrain basin foundation He's keeping tabs on two environmental crises out here, the oil and the disappearing wetlands. Louisiana loses about 25 square miles of land each year. That's a football field every 40 minutes. Sediment from the Mississippi that once regenerated land is trapped behind the river's levees. Canals and oil and gas pipelines cut through marsh, increasing erosion, and hurricanes rip out huge chunks. This little island was once 10 acres. But about 90% of this island was washed away in Katrina, and right now there's just an acre left. If, if something's not done, probably one more storm, this, this island will be washed away entirely. Lopez and his assistant, Andy Baker, pull up a chunk of concrete called an oyster ball. They scrape some samples from the muck in hopes of finding the first tiny colonizers that might one day build a new reef and rebuild the marsh unless the oil hits. This little fragile area is one of the most vulnerable to oil. It's really unknown if this marsh scrap can recover from oiling or if it will be the last blow that will uh, cause this to just completely erode into the sea. Back at the dock in the little town of Point Lahash, oyster fishermen unload 100-pound burlap sacks of oysters onto pallets. These oysters are bound for the restaurants of New Orleans and beyond. Oyster fisherman Warren Duplessis says he's lucky to still be fishing, but he knows the luck won't hold. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now, there ain't no couple of booms going to be able to hold it back. The, the magnitude of that spill, ain't no way you're going to be able to stop all of it. And once again, the marsh, man, really, that's, that's really the laws of fight. I don't know, the animals dying, and then nothing they feed on, because that's where they breed at, you know, mostly in the marsh. And you take that away, well, you take away the seafood and you take away us and the domino effect, you know. Well, what happens to you if that happens? <laughs> I guess we have to try to find another line of work, I guess, you know. <laughs> Either that or starve to death. That could be hard for a lot of people, you know, it really will be. That is their whole life, you know, from generation to generation, you know. All their life, not, no, nothing but the body, nothing but the water, you know. They change with the season, you know. When it's shrimp season, they trawl. When it's archer season, they, they fish archers. You know, crab, they'll crab. Whatever they do, you know, to make a dollar to support their family. A quick look around reveals something else at stake here. An African-American trucker chats with a Mexican-American oysterman. Men joke and swap stories in thick Cajun and Creole accents. The bloodlines are as mixed as the water, and the communities are as tight as the marsh grass roots. You know, and down here, this is a tight, tight community, really is. They ain't a person that everybody don't know everybody, who they are, what they're about, where they come from. Their mama, their grandma, their children, their niece and nephews. That's how close it is down here, you know. You can just pick a lane. You can say, go down two miles and the second lane to such and such, and I can tell you who stayed there, where the people at, and, and what they're going to be doing this evening. <laughs> just about them, baby. You know? So I guess the, the big question is, 
I mean, if oyster beds die, if shrimping uh, is closed down for a long period of time, what happens to all that? <laughs> well, that's the million-dollar question, you know. The uncertainty hangs thick. Nearby, Rodney Eckelard sits in the shade. His face shows the work, weather, and worry of 30 years on the water. He's a deckhand now. He once captained an oyster boat until it was lost in Katrina. See, when Katrina hit us, that destroyed us big time. You know, it took every, all our homes, took every, just wiped us out. You know, so we're just coming back. And now the oysters is coming back. And if, if this happened, well, going on again. We're trying our best, you know, to try to get what we can while we can. Before our day, it killed all our oysters. Yeah. Do you have any confidence that BP is going to uh, to make things right if uh, oyster beds are damaged and you you can't work there anymore? I sure hope so. My confidence is shot so far what I've been seeing, but I sure hope so because man, it could be a lot, lot of years. You know, all these people down here—that's all they do. You know, fish have been doing this all their life, fishing oysters. You know, if if things don't go right, well, how could they live? You know. Oh yeah, bro. Hard time, dude. Hard time. Right now, yeah, it's hard time. Yes. Just ahead, the Gulf Coast cleanup faces another challenge. Hurricane season is just days away. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. The Atlantic hurricane season begins June 1st, and forecasters predict an above-average season with 23 named storms, including 14 hurricanes. All the ingredients are there. Atlantic sea surface temperatures are at near-record highs, and Pacific waters are cooler following last year's El Nino. But this year, there are two new ingredients in the mix. Millions of gallons of oil and thousands of pounds of chemical dispersants swirling in the Gulf of Mexico. As Living on Earth's Bruce Gellerman reports, this could be a recipe for even greater environmental disaster, or perhaps a perfect storm that ends up helping. You know how you get a chill when you come out of a swimming pool? That's because of evaporation. And evaporation is the same process that's the source of energy that drives hurricanes. In summer, solar energy heats the tropical seas. The warm water evaporates and cools, and the energy flows from sea to sky, spawning storms. Kerry Emanuel, professor of atmospheric science at MIT, wanted to study this process, so he built a mini Gulf of Mexico. Yes, we did uh, some years ago in a laboratory. Uh, we had built a laboratory apparatus to study how heat is transferred from the ocean to the atmosphere when the wind is blowing at hurricane force. And we were interested in this because that heat flow is what powers hurricanes. When the experiment was just about finished, Professor Emanuel asked himself a question. What would happen if he added oil to the water? Would the slick on the surface absorb more solar energy and increase the power of a hurricane? Or could an oil spill block evaporation and stall the formation of a storm? There's work going back to the 1960s that suggested that uh, we could put oil on troubled waters and thereby slow down a hurricane. Emmanuel's team set out to create an oil spill in their lab and test if the slick could stop the storm in its tracks. And so we tried various substances, olive oils, fish oils, you know, various kinds of organic oils, 
and um, they do curtail evaporation at low wind speed, but once the wind really starts to blow, the films quickly break up and cease to have an effect. In the lab, the oil slick didn't disrupt hurricane formation. But the experiment did show that when the wind blows 74 miles an hour, the minimum speed for a hurricane, the churning action of wind and waves speeds up the breakdown of the oil, which is good if you have a giant gusher like the one now polluting the Gulf. What researcher Kerry Emanuel didn't test was the effect of an ingredient BP is adding to the disastrous Deepwater Horizon spill, dispersants. So my kids and I tried a simple experiment of our own. Okay, so here we are in our laboratory, better known as our kitchen. And uh, let's see, here is our... Blender. Okay, we'll use that as our ocean. And here is our... Olive oil. That'll be our oil spill. That's so cool. Okay, it's all coming to the surface. And you take our surfactant... Dishwasher soap. We'll squish and we'll... Add a hurricane. Oh my god. <laughs> wow. It looks like milk. I know. Yeah, it does. It, it looks like a milkshake. Like, Is that what happens when it like mixes together? Under certain conditions, yes. It's what happened 21 years ago when the Exxon Valdez dumped 11 million gallons of crude into Alaska's Prince William Sound. Dispersants were used. Two days later, a blustery storm just under hurricane speed blew in, blending sea, oil, and chemicals. It was a recipe for a disaster. The storm emulsified the oil, so what it did was it made it a, a real foamy mess. Scott Pega is research program manager for the Oil Spill Recovery Institute in Cordova, Alaska. The institute funds research on Arctic and subarctic oil spills in marine environments. Pega says in the aftermath of Valdez, scientists came up with a new technical term for the stuff whipped up by the storm, and the name, like the goo, stuck. Moose. Moose, yeah, like as in the dessert, but not as nice. What was the effect of having this moose? Uh, the, the moose is more difficult to clean up. And, you, know, you don't have a lot of your options, so you can't burn it. You have to use different mechanical equipment to help pick it up because it has a different viscosity to it. But with the Exxon Valdez, you had so much oil come out at that one time, it was it was going to be hard one way or another. Scientists don't expect the storm will create as much oily mousse from BP's well as the Valdez disaster. The gulf is larger, the oil is lighter, and the slick thinner and more spread out. The situation today is actually closer to what happened in 1979, when Mexico's Ishtak-1 rig blew up off the coast of the Yucatan, dumping 140 million gallons of oil into the Gulf. The crude coated the Texas coast, and two months later, a tropical storm blew through. But to the surprise of many scientists, it cleaned up much of the oil that was washed ashore, though it also created tar reefs offshore that would break up into pieces in later storms, coating beaches with goo for years to come. A hurricane will certainly disrupt the Deepwater Horizon cleanup effort, and the fear now is that a storm surge, driven by a hurricane's intense winds, could drive a wave of oily water far inland. Professor Piers Chapman, head of the Department of Oceanography at Texas A&M, recalls the surge accompanying Hurricane Rita in 2005. The water from Rita ended up pretty much on I-10, which was about... 20 to 30 miles inland. This is supposed to be a pretty active hurricane season. Yes, uh, that's, that's the worry. 
Every tropical storm is unique and unpredictable, and millions of gallons of oil and chemical dispersants above and below the Gulf add to the complexity, making this year's hurricane season a giant, closely watched experiment of enormous importance. For Living on Earth, I'm Bruce Kellerman. The Environmental Protection Agency recently announced tough new emission standards for cars and trucks, the country's first limits on greenhouse gases from vehicles. And early next year, the EPA will ask big industrial polluters to cut back on CO2. These moves come thanks to the EPA's new authority to regulate greenhouse gases. But that upsets some members of Congress who think the agency has no business regulating its way to climate change policy. Living on Earth's Mitra Taj reports. In the late 1990s, environmental advocate Joe Mendelson was thinking about how to get the government to take action on climate change. As a lawyer for the Sierra Club, he saw potential in the Clean Air Act. The definition of what a pollutant is under the Clean Air Act is very broad. It's basically things that are emitted into the air and harm public health and welfare. Though the Environmental Protection Agency was using the Clean Air Act to limit pollutants like lead and carbon monoxide, it was reluctant to put carbon dioxide into the same category. The Bush administration said the agency simply didn't have the authority to curb emissions of greenhouse gases. States and environmental groups sued, and the case eventually landed in the United States Supreme Court, where Mendelssohn served as co-counsel. You know, at one point, Actually, um, some spittle from Justice Breyer kind of landed on my uh, notes in front of me. And, and I realized, looked around and said, wow, you know, went to law school to be an environmental attorney and you're in the Supreme Court on climate change. So I can't say we expected it, but once it was moving forward, we saw the path you could go down. The path led to the court's controversial 2007 ruling, telling the EPA it can regulate greenhouse gas emissions, then to the Obama EPA decision to use that authority. It first enacted tougher standards for vehicle emissions, and soon will do the same for big industrial polluters. But Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski wants to put a stop to it all. I would like to think that we can can put the brakes on EPA now as they're moving forward in implementing regulations under the Clean Air Act. I don't think that they, as a regulatory agency, should be the one that puts in place climate policy. The Alaskan senator wants Congress to strip EPA's new authority using a little-used process called the Congressional Review Act. No filibusters allowed. That means she only needs 51 votes instead of 60 to get it passed. She already has 41, but many analysts say getting it through the Senate will be tough, getting it through the House tougher still, and getting the president to sign it into law unlikely. Joe Mendelson now directs global warming policy for the National Wildlife Federation. I'm heartened by the fact that I don't think it's going to become law. However, it is a very symbolic vote as to what the Senate thinks about climate change. For the Senate to support the Murkowski Amendment would be a real step back in denying the climate science. And I think that's a vote that senators do not want to be on the wrong side of history on. But that's not how everyone sees it. Myron Ebel is director of energy and global warming policy at the conservative think tank, the Competitive Enterprise Institute. The Murkowski Resolution is something that people should support, even if they think global warming is a big problem. Now, we don't think global warming is a big problem, but even if you do, you should agree that the Clean Air Act is about the worst possible way that you could 
figure out to regulate carbon dioxide emissions. He says the free market should lead the way, and that EPA action will only raise prices and suppress technological innovations that could lead to emissions reductions. The Obama administration says it's better to legislate a solution than to mandate one. A law passed by Congress would build more consensus, have broader reach, and be more likely to survive following administrations. But the Senate has yet to act. Lindsey Graham used to be the key Republican co-sponsor of the Kerry Lieberman bill to cap greenhouse gas emissions. It puts a price on carbon and takes away the EPA's ability to use the Clean Air Act to reduce some industrial emissions. Senator Graham no longer promotes the bill, but he is one of 41 co-sponsors of Murkowski's resolution. I'm going to vote to preempt the EPA with the understanding that Congress should eventually and systematically regulate carbon pollution. Graham says the Gulf spill has made it tougher to sell the Kerry Lieberman bill's key trade-off, an expansion of offshore oil drilling. He said smaller versions of an energy climate bill could be the way forward. There's some things that we can do on nuclear power. There's some things that we can do on the uh, alternative energy side that would make it easier for our country to start creating technologies before China owns the whole alternative energy economy. But I don't see 60 votes right now for capping carbon and expanding offshore drilling. One no vote would likely come from Lisa Murkowski. I don't think that the EPA preemption language in Kerry Lieberman is adequate. So to suggest that even if I did like the EPA preemption language in Kerry Lieberman, that I would somehow support the bill, ignores the the flaws in the rest of the bill. Senator Murkowski's proposal is scheduled for a vote June 10th. The Kerry Lieberman climate bill could hit the floor later this summer. In the meantime, the EPA is gearing up to require big power plants, factories, and refineries to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions starting January of next year. For Living on Earth, I'm Mitra Taj in Washington. The United Nations has announced a new executive secretary for its Framework Convention on Climate Change. That's the body charged with negotiating a global treaty to reduce greenhouse gases. Christiana Figueres of Costa Rica will succeed current secretary Ivo Dubor. She has a lengthy resume of international work related to climate change, and Figueres comes from a long line of public servants. Both her brother and father served as president of Costa Rica, and her mother was a member of Costa Rica's Congress. Living on Earth's Steve Kerwood telephoned Ms. Figueres to ask about her tough new job. Hi, how are you? Thank you for your invitation today. Well, and congratulations on your appointment. Well, thank you. But did you ever think, uh, be careful of what you wish for? This is not the world's easiest job. It's not the world's easiest, but it's definitely the world's most inspiring. I am delighted, and I'm very much looking forward to it. How'd you get interested in climate? I got interested in climate in the early 90s because Costa Rica had already taken a very decided world leadership role in taking uh, climate change as a national goal. And I took the uh, lessons learned from Costa Rica, founded a uh, international NGO whose purpose it was to support governments in Latin America to get more and more involved in the climate convention and begin to adopt more climate-friendly policies. And I dedicated uh, quite a few years of my life to that NGO. People say you were selected because you have a great reputation as being a negotiator, a conciliator who brings people together. How much of that do you see as your, as your personal strength? Absolutely critical. Absolutely critical. I've been uh, really honored to have done that for quite a few years on specific subtopics 
this is the first time in which I will uh, have the honor and the task of doing that conciliation for the entire breadth of topics. But it is clear that we are at a point in which conciliation and identification of common ground among the different parties is very critical in order for us to move forward. How important is it that you're the first American? Latin American, yes, but also very conversant with American culture as well, to head the the UN uh, Climate Convention? I would say what is very, very important is that it's the first citizen of the developing world that uh, occupies this post. We have had three executive secretaries, the first Michael Summit from Malta, the second, Joke Hunter from Holland. The third current executive secretary, Ivo de Boer, also from Holland. So first time that this is in the hands of the developing world. And I think that that's actually quite symbolic and uh, represents the much greater role that the developing world is taking in the climate negotiations. I'm wondering if there can be a U.N. climate agreement without the U.S. passing a climate bill Indeed, can you even have a very good meeting in Cancun in, what, uh, beginning of December of this year without a, a U.S. climate bill? If the U.S. manages to have a, an approved climate bill by the time that we all go to Cancun, it will obviously be a boost to the negotiations. However, if that legislation is still underway and needs to be further worked on next year, we can still have a successful meeting in Cancun. What we're focusing on or what countries have chosen to focus on in Cancun is the very uh, concrete delivery of the building blocks of a future agreement, including fast-track financing, a structure for technology transfer and capacity building, a concrete way in which to address reduction of emissions from deforestation and degradation, and certainly very, very importantly for the most vulnerable countries, a very uh, structured way to address adaptation. So all of these represent an opportunity where the United States can participate even in the absence of an overall national legislation. Now, in Copenhagen, the promise was made that there'd be some $100 billion in climate finance. Now, what's it going to take to deliver that? The pledge under the Copenhagen Accord is for industrialized countries to provide $10 billion a year for this year, for next year, and for the year 2012, making up a total of $30 billion that are under the classification of fast start financing. After that, the Copenhagen Accord uh, aspires to a availability of $100 billion by the year 2020, and countries will have to uh, budget in in an incremental fashion, so we will gradually be moving up to that. How do you build trust and credibility into the process? One of the things that I think is most urgent there to build trust is to begin to give proof of uh, willingness to move forward and to act. And in that sense, uh, Cancun acts as a very, very important step in the trust-building process in which I see that uh, in Cancun we may be able to put on the table already some of the elements that were identified in Copenhagen. All of these that are currently pledges and good intentions on paper really need to be brought into life. Well, I look forward to seeing you in Cancun. Thank you very much. So do I. 
Christiana Figueres is the incoming executive secretary of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Thank you so much. Thank you. You can hear Steve Kerwood's full interview with Christiana Figueres on our website, LOE.org. And check out our new Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. up what author Cy Montgomery learned from the flock in her backyard and a rare bird halfway around the world. Birdology, just ahead on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. For the past month, we've been featuring stories from our new online offering, Planet Harmony. We've heard reports from all over the country about communities often underrepresented in environmental decision-making. Today, one of our Planet Harmony reporters has some thoughts on the importance of bringing more voices to the environmental conversation. Hey, this is Wanda Hasey, and I'm sitting here next to the Pacific Ocean on West Cliff Beach in Santa Cruz, California. I don't consider myself an environmentalist. It's just the state of the environment has a lot to do with the health of my family and friends. The health of a community can be measured through the health of its environment. And to me, no other community lives up to this more than the one I grew up in. I was raised in the San Joaquin Valley in Central California. When you drive through the valley, as we like to call it, you pass through an endless succession of alfalfa fields, orange trees, and dairies. It's a pastoral piece of Americana. On the flip side, the valley has some of the highest rates of obesity and childhood asthma in the country, and these rates are even worse for people of color. So then I have to take a step back and remind myself to give things a second look. When I was a kid, I had severe asthma but I was hardly a special case. I remember my daily midday asthma treatment at school. I would stand in line outside the nurse's office and wait with a few other kids who were almost exclusively Latino. We never really thought much of it. This was simply a fact of life. But the older I got, the more this general acceptance bugged me. The valley was my home, but it made me sick. Now that I'm older, I see all the signs around me the thick layer of smog on the horizon, and the crop dusters that drop pesticides on fields near housing developments. Valley residents are unhealthy because of these very things. Why wasn't anyone angry? Planet Harmony has created a space. Now we can follow underrepresented communities' struggles and accomplishments in environmental and health issues across the country and the globe. Winda Hasey reports for Planet Harmony. Planet Harmony welcomes all and pays special attention to issues affecting communities of color. Check out more from Wenda and contribute your own thoughts, ideas, and stories at MyPlanetHarmony.com. That's MyPlanetHarmony.com. Author and Living on Earth contributor Cy Montgomery wants to challenge the way we relate to the other species we live with here on Earth, especially some of the ones we most take for granted, 
birds. Her new book, Birdology, is an ambitious study of the avian world, and its subtitle gives a hint of just how wide-ranging the book is. It's Adventures with a Pack of Hens, a Peck of Pigeons, Cantankerous Crows, Fierce Falcons, Hip-Hop Parrots, Baby Hummingbirds, and One Murderously Big Living Dinosaur. Cy Montgomery, welcome back to Living on Earth. Thanks for having me. You went pretty far afield in your research, all the way to the other side of the planet, in search of what you call the, the dinosaur bird, the cassowary. Yes, the cassowary. This is a bird who weighs 150 pounds. He's got a tall helmet of bone on his head. He's got these amazing feet equipped with slashing toenails. They look more like dinosaurs than many dinosaurs did. And so the chance to see one of these in the wild was really worth a great deal of effort. (laughs) And you kept trying and trying, going to this place and that. They're fairly elusive. Finally, you had your moment. That's right. That's right. It was actually the last day I was in Australia. And I thought, oh, no, I'm going to have to go home. And I will have heard it but never seen it. And as I sat there on a bench just waiting... That was when the bird slipped out of the forest, stepping as if through a crack in time. And this man-tall, 150-pound bird steps out of the forest right in front of me, so close that I could see his orange eyes and even the eyelashes fringing it. I could see the red wattles swaying on the blue neck. I, I could see how the cask, that helmet of bone, curved slightly to one side. I could see the long, slashing toenail on the foot. And of course, you know, the bird had to have seen me. Here I am, you know, 125 pounds with yellow hair sitting right there. But he never looked at me. It was like I didn't exist. It was as if I had traveled back into time and there weren't any people. I finally had a wish I'd treasured since I was a little kid playing with my plastic dinosaurs. I had a dinosaur right in front of me. The cassowary's call, you describe it as something that you feel in your chest almost more than you hear. Yes. People who have heard cassowary calls in the wild often think they're in an earthquake because it's this deep, thunderous, resonant call. And did you see Jurassic Park? Mm -hmm. There's a point in Jurassic Park where the dinosaurs are coming. You see the water, the water you, vibrating in the cup and things like that? Yes. Exactly. Yes. That's what this sounds like. And in fact, it probably is very similar to the kinds of calls that dinosaurs made because there are plenty of dinosaurs, particularly the ones we call the hadrosaurs or the duck-billed dinosaurs that had those tall helmets of bone on the head. And it's this deep call that travels a long way in the wet rainforest. Well, it's, it's, it's a fascinating glimpse into that bird and, and also the community that has embraced that bird. Everywhere you go, you find people who have these really special relationships with birds. I guess that's part of your quest here is to better understand not just birds, but uh, how birds and, and people really relate. Exactly. In fact, all of my books really are looking at the relationships between people and the rest of animate creation. Many of us go through our whole day 
interacting only with one species. And while it's true that humans are pretty great, and you know, I I married one, but my my whole family isn't made up of just one species. I've got several species in my family, and it's important to me to have relationships with members of other species. Otherwise, how can we feel at home on this earth? You know, I really liked your chapter on uh, falconry and and birds of prey. The fierceness that you write about is so evident in these animals. It's striking. They are pure. And I, I really like that you, you strongly identified with that, so much so that you had to learn falconry. Yes. It's because I love birds, of course. But falconry is venery. I always thought venery was one of the, the seven deadly sins, but venery is hunting. And I'm definitely not a hunter. I mean, I'm a vegetarian. You know, <laughs> I won't eat a hamburger. So you had to get over that in a hurry. If you're gonna, you're oh gonna be, my gosh! Now, wait a minute. You raise chickens, and here you are. You're going to be feeding these these hawks uh, baby chicks, or little chicks. Yes. Is that right? And I and I oh. have raised baby chicks by keeping them in my sweater all day. I mean, it was rough, but I wanted this so badly to touch that fierceness, to touch the pureness of. That living in the moment, that instinctiveness, that pure wildness, I really wanted to go there. And the only way to really go there is to become a hawk's hunting partner. Because hunting is what they want. The the term in falconry is called yarrick, and it names that intense desire, the desire above all else, to hunt, to chase, to catch and to be a part of that is thrilling beyond measure. I got the feeling at several points in the book that you, you felt this temptation, as we all do, to project uh, human qualities onto animals that we identify with. But in this chapter on the hawks, I got the feeling that you decided it's best to, to just appreciate these animals for what they are. Well, you know, what we call human qualities aren't just shared by humans unless you think we arose de novo. You know, evolution tells us that we share 40% of our DNA with a daisy. And just because we as humans can think and feel, it doesn't mean that nobody else can think and feel. But in some cases, I'm certain that birds can, in fact, think and feel much as we do, because there's some birds who can tell us this, parrots who talk and speak meaningfully. But in the hawks, I was concentrating on an aspect of birds that isn't necessarily shared with humans. And I'm so interested throughout this book in exploring the ways that we are both like and unlike birds. I'm fascinated by both their sameness and their otherness. And in the hawk chapter, I'm very much exploring that otherness. You went really far afield to do some of this work, but a lot of it was motivated by the bird's right there in your backyard. You develop a relationship with your your chickens that I I think uh, not a lot of people who keep chickens do. They're almost members of the family. Oh, they certainly are. They come in the mail (laughs) um, as babies, and I keep them uh, the first few weeks in my office where I write. And they grow up sitting on my shoulder, sitting in my lap, and uh, they adopt me as an honorary chicken. So this gives me a great view into the chicken universe. Raising chickens, especially now, increasingly in urban settings, it's kind of a hot thing. Why do you think that's taking off? Well, I think it starts with this idea of, of self-sufficiency. But then something else happens that maybe people didn't initially bargain for, and that is 
they fall in love with their chickens. They realize these are smart animals. These are, are not stupid automatons. Each one has an individual personality. They make these lovely sounds. They're beautiful. They're graceful. And they know us. It's now known from laboratory experiments the average chicken can recognize a 100 other individuals. And they look at each other and know who you are pretty much the way we do by looking at the face. They're really great. And each one is extremely individualistic. Um, some are bold and brassy. Some are shy. Some are real smart. And you can't really spend time with chickens without realizing that everything we know about chickens like they're stupid, filthy automatons, is completely wrong. They're so surprising, you can't help but fall in love. A chicken is a a, a bird that has such a special relationship with people. Uh, What have you learned about how uh, we and they uh, affect each other? Well, unfortunately, most people's relationship with chicken is um, of a culinary nature. (laughs) Yes. And I was very surprised to learn that the humane laws that, that cover and, – and they aren't strong enough for mammals, but they do exist for, for mammals who are raised for food. They do not exist for birds. And the last place in the world that you should keep a chicken is cooped up in a place where they can't have meaningful relationships with other chickens. That's everything to a chicken. You hear about the pecking order. The pecking order is about order. It's not about pecking. But it's really important to know who you are in the flock. They're very social creatures. What do you think is the most surprising thing you've learned about birds in the course of uh, researching and writing this book? The most unwelcome surprise was the rate at which birds are declining. And this was a shock. One out of every eight bird species is in decline worldwide. And in North America, a quarter of our birds have been declining since 1970. It's worse on some continents. In Europe, it's nearly half the common birds that are in decline, including the famous nightingale. I suppose it shouldn't be all that surprising because we know exactly what's causing the problem. It's the usual suspects. It's overpopulation. It's deforestation. It's pollution. It's global climate change. According to BirdLife International, global climate change is the number one reason that birds are in decline around the world. So we know why it is, and we know how to fix it. And it's my hope that we will let the birds inspire us and give us the courage to do what we know needs doing to make this world a fit place for birds and beasts. Cy Montgomery, the book is Birdology. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much for having me back on. River otters are not common in southern New England. Writer Mark Seth Linder had not seen one in 20 years. The only sure way to find them is when they find you. As Mark stood on the edge of a small pond in Groton, Connecticut, that's just what happened. On the far side of the pond, bubbles braille the surface, cerulean blue, soft as morning stars. Half light, the air is still, the lilies rustle, their posted buds stirred by a breeze of water sway like channel markers. There, just offshore, someone breaking fast, leisurely. Jaws worked in a whisper, reaching across the silence there. Then rolls and dips and disappears. 
A beaver lodge stands nearby. They built this pond, but that was no beaver. The texture of its fur, the shape and the way it moved, the smoothness of the dive and how the surface rose and closed, a navel of water and what it brings to mind. That surface, opaque as skin, blind to what lies beneath. Patience, patience. The crease of a wake, grainy light. The water speaks. A head appears, oiled, sleek, coat like silk, all umber and burnt ochre. Whiskers, dark eyes, fearless. That broad boy cat face, so close. And my heart leaps. I too am fearless. I am soaring. I see what I was sure I would never see again. And now again. The river otter, alone and having had his long look, turns away. Now head, now back, now tail slipping beneath. Some yards off, he reappears, looks again, dives again, resurfaces. This time he has a bullfrog. It dangles from his mouth as if forgotten, his gaze still fixed on me, more intense than curious, as if he has as much to tell as to learn. For the last time, he slides below, leaving a silence so profound neither speech nor written word can break it. Mark Seth Linder writes the syndicated column Salt Marsh Diary. To see his photographs of the river otter and find out more, go to our website, loe.org. This week in the wetlands of Northumberland, England. Now, these high-pitched squeaks might sound like birds, but they're actually the calls of a pair of otters. The European otter, or Lutra lutra, is an endangered species in Britain, mainly due to wetland drainage and water pollution. This recording is on the CD Vanishing Wildlife, and it comes to us courtesy of the British Library and the University of Chicago Press. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Bolinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Shriskanjaraja, and Beecher Taj, with help from Sarah Calkins and Sammy Sousa. This week, we bid a grateful, if glum, farewell to our wonderful interns, Emily Guerin and Bridget McDonald. We wish you both the very best of luck. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. Steve Crowood is our executive producer. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And check out our new Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, 
dedicated to the idea that all people deserve a chance to live a healthy, productive life. Information at GatesFoundation.org. And Pax World Mutual Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld for tomorrow. PRI Public Radio International.